This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Morfield. The Supreme Court has ruled by a vote of five to four that that is me. This is episode number 19 for July 2012. Our topic for this episode is Chariots of Fire, the 1981 film by Hugh Hudson, Oscar Best Picture Award winner, and beloved favorite by many Christian viewers. So, Ken, why is it beloved? I think the easy answer to that question is that the Christianity that is in the film is an example of what Barbara Ehrenreich calls in, in her book, Nickel and Dime, visible Christianity. I think she was the one who coined that term. That there is a character, perhaps the main character, although the story is roughly divided into two, who is a Christian and is portrayed favorably, more or less, who is accomplished in his faith and in his profession. And so that seems to me to be the easy answer. I don't know if there's more to it than that. There's a part of me that would like to say uh, Christians are sophisticated enough that they care about the quality of the movie and not just the content and the way that Christians are presented. But there's a cynical part of me that uh, says, I'm not sure if that's the case. So that's my initial answer. What do you think in terms of... I think, you know, in many ways, you know, very similar to you. This was certainly a film that Eric Little... The, the Christian in the film, real person. The film is based on a on true life events. And it's it is certainly presenting Christianity in a positive light. Um, Eric Little in this case is not just a Christian. He's a missionary. Um, he's the son of missionaries to China. He is planning you know, once he's done running, he's planning on going back to China. He while he is in England, he is preaching He's as visible as one can be um, and certainly uses his celebrity um, as a, an athlete to to promote Christian values, Christian beliefs, Christian teaching, and makes a very visible stand for a principle. And one of the things I find interesting about this being a beloved film among Christian circles is that he's upholding a principle that I think largely goes by the wayside today. Um, which is he refuses to run on Sunday. And I, I, I think that's an, it's an interesting thing for that to be the value that is kind of the centerpiece of the film. I mean, yes, we have Chick-fil-A today who will stay closed on Sunday to honor the Sabbath. But in terms of the athletic Christian, you know, how many athletes that are Christians today, you know, they're playing baseball and football and running track on Sundays. Um, and a lot of Christians, very even very political conservative Christians, don't have a problem with that. Right. You it, know? It, it is not. It's one of the things I find interesting about the film. Right. It's hard for me to generalize 
with Christian audiences. But I think there's something more to it than just the legalism of upholding the principle, because as you say, that principle or that law or that rule is largely... Um, I think it's the idea of principled action. Right. Is, I, well, is what I think people lack, latch on to. Uh, there, I, I mean, there is a sort of projection that I think that films with a lot of Christian followers have of the notion of, well, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but a lot of the Christians will say, well, we want a film that represents us. You right. know, we're not depicted on screen, and so here, here we are. But it's also an idealized portrait, and so, I mean, I think it's like we want to something that portrays us as we want to be or we want to think of ourselves to be. We want heroes. Yeah. And Eric Little, in real life, was certainly a hero. Um, just, you know, when you take the bare facts of his life, he was he lived a very sacrificial life, a very humble life. If you look past the events in Chariots of Fire, uh, when he goes back to China, and during World War II, when he, he dies in a prison camp, a mm-hmm. Japanese prison camp, um, all of the reports of other members... I kind of report this situation where there was lots of fractiousness and lots of clickishness going on in the camp. Mm-hmm. And Eric Little was the one man who was humble and always trying to do good for others. Um, you know, he was the real deal. Right. And so to have that story out there, I think it is. It's, it's like, in a sense, an idealized vision of the Christian. And yet it's something that we can aspire to. Yeah, well, I mean, Eric Little was an actual person. Yes. You know, was an actual historical person. And I think that contributes to the Christian liking of the film as well, because it's a sort of built-in inoculation against the claim that, well, this is just an idealized right. version of, of Christianity. It's sort of the veneration. Anytime you have a hagiography or a veneration of saints or the saints, then... I think if this was just a fictional account, people could, who were more cynical, could say, oh, well, that's a very idealized portrait, but there aren't really Christians like that. Right. And then the Christian can come back and say, no, he was a real person. Now, obviously, then if you want to push a little bit farther, you can get into how accurate is the film. Right. And, and what are, which is one of the things that kind of bothered me is that, um, I think there is an inspiring enough story in his actual story that we don't need these shadings for dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous thing when you're dealing with the true story because that always runs the risk of sort of saying, well, you have an agenda of making him. And he's he's so perfect in the film. I mean, that's one of the reservations or the pushbacks of the film. It's not just that he has integrity in this one issue that he won't run on Sunday. But he's also the guy that goes up and shakes the Jewish runner's hand. Right. You know, when all of the other people at the college are being not even veiled anti-Semitism, but are, you know, are being very, uh, you know, critical. He walks up to his opponent and says, I'd like to wish you the best of, of success. And I, I think it needs to be said, he wins. Yes. Uh, now, the ultimate race in the Olympics, 
he doesn't end up running against Abraham's, but in the one, you know, in the one race, in the one early heat, when there is finally a showdown between the Jewish runner who represents running for himself and running for the future, I think Abraham's says at one point, I believe in the pursuit of excellence and I will carry the future with me right. and gets a personal trainer and doesn't see anything wrong with getting when the, there is the one showdown between the Christian and the Jew, the Christian wins. Um, and, and I think it's interesting in, in that exact point, we talk about the, the shading, the dramatic shading of real events. Right. Um, I was doing some research on the, the, the true story mm-hmm. of this. And there are some, you know, s- seemingly small. And you might say, oh, well, those are, these are small details. And yet, for the exact reason you point out, and the way that the, the story in the film is shaped, I think there's some really interesting things to think about this film. And one is, in the, in the real 1924 Olympics, Little actually does run a race against Abrams. Um, they run in the 200-meter race. Abrams come in like six, and Little comes in third. It's, you know, and the only race we see in the movie right. is the 400 meters. So in real life, Abrahams and Little do have that competition together. Now, in terms of the facts and your point, yeah, the Christian wins um, in the race. But the other thing that gets interesting to me also is that in real life, it was Eric Little who introduced Abrahams to the coach. So there was this relationship that they had long before the Olympics that we don't see in the film. Right. And, and again, that might be a small point, and some might say, oh, it makes for a better story. But I, I think to your point, it didn't need to be you know, that sort of Jew and Christian competition thing and, and still be a good story. Okay, I think we, we need to take a step back and say, does it make for a better story? Uh, because I think one of the things that we're, we're driving towards, uh, which is something that I've been wrestling with since rewatching the film, which I hadn't seen in a long time, is what is the story? Yeah. Um, in, in some senses, the story is very straightforward. It's a typical sports story mm-hmm. about athletes in training climaxing in the big match in this case the olympics in paris and yet the the one distinguishing feature is that the story seems somewhat bifurcated it's not following the hero so that you have unequivocal allegiance you actually have these two stories some might even argue that it's the broader story of the team uh, with some minor nods towards yeah. the other characters, but not really. No. I mean, the film tries to. Say, I mean, I was really surprised. I mean, I like you. I have not seen this film since uh, it's been easily twenty years since I've seen this film, and I had there were certain parts of the film that had totally erased from my memory. Mm-hmm. And one was the beginning of the film, which starts at Abraham's funeral in 1978, and you know it, it's the kind of you know, the typical frame story of, okay, here's the funeral. We get this one of the team, mm-hmm. the survive, one of the only surviving team members is kind of remembering, oh, you know, we were this great, you know, this group of young men who were going to the Olympics. And then, 
we flash back and we get the story. Right. But I thought it was fascinating that the frame is focused on Abraham's. Right. And and in fact, at least to, in my in my viewing of it this time, the the little story is really a secondary story. And I mean, it it's big. It's certainly Abraham's and little, but. I mean, Little's character, as you know, you point out, he's too perfect. Mm-hmm. There is no dramatic development mm-hmm. in the Little character. We see him; he's the the staunch Scottish Christian from the beginning, and yes, he has to deal with this difficulty of what am I going to do about running on Sunday? But he never changes. Well, there's opposition, there's hurdles, there are but hurdles. There's not but really conflict or there's development. no development. Whereas and Abraham's. We see development. You know, he really struggles with the... I mean, he starts struggling with the anti-Semitism. The striving for excellence. But then we get this really fascinating end of the story where he wins. I mean, he gets what he wants. Mm -hmm. And then he, he is struggling and wrestling with what now? You know, he's devoted his whole life to the achievement of this goal... He achieves it, and then he's empty and doesn't know what to do. And we get all kinds of interesting development. Right. So part of what I'm hearing, and I I think you make an excellent point, is that structurally the film sets this up to be Abraham's story. Yeah. But then you get into it, and there's really the A story and the B story, and they get kind of equal weight. Right. And they're not really integrated. No, that's it. I, you wonder if, on some level, the script could have been like a mini series or you know different episodes about different characters, right? But I mean, they're integrated in the sense of their stories overlap, um, and there's yeah, I mean, they're on the same team, and the race that little beats Abraham's in is instrumental in his development, but that's kind of like an intersection of the story, and then their stories right. go off in other ways. Uh, and then it comes back at the end, and this really is Abraham's story, uh, until we get to the credits and what happened to all of the different runners, and we get a posting about what happened a little in China, which almost makes me feel like, okay, well, maybe the film doesn't have enough to be about any one mm-hmm. of the people, you know, and so, right. and, and it's not that I think, I, I think either of them, either of these stories on their own could be compelling, but by putting them together, I don't think you get it exponentially more interesting. Right. I think you get one of those where just at the point where it's interesting and they're asking some questions about what comes next there's not enough time because we got to go to the other one. It, it, yeah. I, I mean, I I hate to say this because it's a film that's so beloved by so many Christians, uh, but I, I keep dancing around the word. It's It struck me as being very superficial. Just And I realize that's a pejorative word, but just mm-hmm. it, it never strays very far from the surface. It, it never strays very right. far from... Uh, there aren't a lot of narrative surprises. There aren't a lot of developmental surprises. Uh, kind of what you see is what you get. And in that particular sense, too, I found it a very on-the-nose film. Uh, one of my pet peeves will be films that are like, 
okay, we think you are too dumb to understand what we have just shown you, so we are going to repeat it. The, 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 certainly the two most famous things that I can remember 20 years later from Chariots of Fire are When I Run, I Feel His Pleasure. Right. And that's uh, from Eric Little trying to explain to his sister why you could run. And, and I think, okay, that's very important for establishing his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's good. And how many Christians have quoted to me that over the year while they love that. And the other is the speech that he gives in the rain saying, you know, where do you get the energy to finish the race? It comes from within. Uh, and okay, that's a nice little bit of character development that's in the first third of the movie that tells you who he is and what he is. And then you get the whole rest of the movie and then he's running the race. And while he's running the race, we have to have a slow motion in which both of those sound bites are repeated for him running. You know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Where does the strength come? It comes from within. And there's something to me that's like, okay, you couldn't trust me to remember that scene 40 minutes ago and make a connection between like, hmm, why did he win the race? I'll bet it has something to do with what he says, what motivates him in terms of running. I know this is cynical about a lot of Christian viewers, but it just seems like they like their meaning spoon-fed to them in art. And I guess I don't, you know, I don't mind it being obvious, but it's just then when it's obvious and then it comes back and says, were we obvious enough? We have to be a little <laughs> bit more obvious. Then, then you start getting pushback. You start getting resentment. And then, uh, you know, I start sort of, ending up having that very negative reaction about, oh, no one's that perfect, because you feel like it's being shoved down your throat. And I think this kind of gives a nice segue into one of the, I think, unintended ironies um, that, in some ways, that that very pointed, heavy-handed, this-is-the-point sort of filmmaking created in this film, which was... When we get to the Olympics and, you know, Little has made his big stand. I'm not going to run on Sunday. We are going to honor God or I'm going to honor God. And of course, you know, the rest of the team is running on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so we get this montage of, you know, okay, there's Little. He's not running. And then all of the British runners who are running on Sunday fail in spectacular ways. Um, They fall in the mud. They whatever. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that, okay, so, you know, that's a bit heavy-handed, too. It's the, oh, the guy who didn't run is honoring God. Everybody who does run fails. But it's the Americans who are winning. And, you know, you get you run into the same, well, supposedly the Americans are, you know, that's a Christian nation. <laughs> and these are, you know, well, and we even get... At the end of the film, Jack Schultz, one of the American runners, hands little a little note that says, you know, he who honors God, God will honor him. A quote from, I forget what the scripture reference is. But what about those Americans who were running on Sunday? Were they not honoring God? Were they honoring God? I mean, you, you start carrying this, you know, when you're making that big point of if you run on Sunday, you will fail because you're not honoring God. It falls apart real quick in in this film. I just I was like, well, what is this saying about the Americans? What is this yeah. saying about? Whereas, if you would, you know, 
not putting so much of, of heavy-handedness on it. You could have just said, he's honoring God. He's doing his thing. We don't have to make it that then that all the Brits fail. There, there, it's a very British movie. And to the, that extent, I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to disagree slightly uh, with the point that you're getting at in the sense of, I, I think for a sports movie, you have to demonize the opponent oh, sure. a, a little bit. And so I actually think that having Schultz pass that, it, it's a nice little touch in the sense of there are some of the American, Charlie Paddock, I think, yeah. is presented as being you know, somewhat arrogant, and there's some stuff before the race about, oh, don't worry about him. And, oh, it reminded you, me you of Rocky IV. I mean, a big blonde guy. But, <laughs> you know, it, but it's also not... The Karate Kid, you know, where it's just like, let's do every little thing that we can to make these people so evil or, you know, and so in that sense, I, but I think you're right, or I agree with you that when you Christianize that, yes, when you put a Christian layer onto that sports trope of, I have to not just be better than you athletically, but I have to be better than you morally or intellectually so that my win on the f- athletic field means something more right. than just I'm a better runner than you. It actually means that I'm a better person than you and that it's actually God honoring me and, you know, you get into the whole thing about why do people pray before right. uh, sporting <laughs> events and does God really care who wins and does he not listen to the prayers of uh, the other people and was no one on the American team honoring him. But I also don't think that that exchange was what that was about. Not the exchange. I was focusing yeah. more on this montage right. that we get of all the Brits failing. Right. But they're failing because these, you know, the Americans are winning. Right. Um, and is not, is not America also a Christian nation? Mm-hmm. And it just, it sets up some untenable, I think, binaries. Um, when you're making such a point of it. Right. Um, that, yeah, that's all I was... Well, you had said something on Facebook right after the film, that the film was both worse than and better than you remembered. Yes. There is a part of me that is trying to recapture a first viewing and respond to the work of art and not just the train loads of... I'm not sure I'm suspicious of my response, whether I'm responding to a superficial movie mm-hmm. or whether I'm responding to what I perceive to be a lot of superficial Christians who have responded to the movie. And I have to say part of my suspicion and my pushback and resentment towards this movie is Chariots of Fire is a movie that a lot of Christians like or claim to revere who don't like movies. And I find myself resentful (laughs) of that. That's sort of like saying, okay, I don't like movies because most movies are trash and most movies are that. And I, you know, I am above uh, watching movies, and I don't really esteem movies or the power of arts in general. But I make an exception for Chariots of Fire. And, again, that's not the film's fault. No. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I certainly have to acknowledge that in my viewing, it was creating all sorts of resentment or pushback in terms of, it was almost like I wanted to not like the movie. I wanted it to be bad. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be worse <laughs> than I could so that I could say, yeah, all you, you know, Christians, this is an emphasis of what goes wrong when you don't like movies and then you dabble into something like that. 
And there's a part of me that doesn't like that in myself that wants to just be able to say, okay, if you don't like movies in general, that's your loss. There's a lot of good movies that you've missed sure. out on. But that there's no reason why you can't enjoy this one, mm-hmm. you know, and only really get resentful when people say not this is a good movie or this is my favorite movie, but this is the best movie ever. Oh, it's so awesome, you know. Um, but then I don't know how many people actually do that or say that about that movie. I, didn't. I think, well, I think this is one of those things as we get further away from it. Um, certainly, I remember as a teenager going, I mean, we, my entire church went to the movie theater en masse. One, you know, it was a, it was a big event. We went to see the film, um, you know, pack the theater out sort of deal. And, you know, at the time, you know, that was, it was this, it was huge. I've been in churches or youth groups where they take the Vangelis song (laughs) and turn it into a hymn, add words to it that are just then that can be done in a, in a worship service. So, you know, I understand that response, right? Um, but as we get get further and further away, I, I think, yeah, unfortunately, especially with a non movie going audience, it, it is suffering the fate of most movies, which is, oh, that's so old. Yeah, um, it's slow. It's, I mean, it, it in some ways, you know, you said it's, it's a very British film, um, and it's a very British athletic film. I mean, it's it's not it's not the American sports film, right? Um, I mean, it has certain tropes, but. <laughs> The pacing is very slow. We get lots of talking, mm-hmm. um, characters interacting with each other, uh, and and so that's. Well, I want to come back to the slow for a second. In yeah. a second, but I want I, w- I want to face this thought so the, about the Christian, res- you know, the sort and, of Christian responses. Yeah. And I, I just I, I think, you know, at, at the time it was huge, and and in some ways it, it was the first quality film that really presented Christians in a positive light. Um, that hit, you know, that was a mainstream, high quality. I mean, it won Best Picture. It beat out Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, for Best Picture. But, you know, I think as time goes on, I, I don't know that it has quite the totemic value that, or, you know, maybe at least people of our generation, it has some of that, that totemic value. For younger generations, I don't think so. Right. Well, one of the things I'm wrestling with or coming to realize is that part of my own development as I was going to say a film critic, but really just a film watcher, mm-hmm. you know, a film consumer is that seminal, I won't even say moment, but that transition between being able to make a distinction between affinity. This is what I like. Right. And judgment. I think this is good. Um, and once people, myself included, are able to make that distinction, I don't have a problem with people liking what I don't like or liking something more or less mm-hmm. than I do uh, because that's part of what affinity is about. There's, there's any number of films that I have a great affinity for that I recognize are not the best films right. in the world, but for reasons... Um, Whatever. They're very near and dear to my heart. Sure. You know, there are plenty of films that I recognize the quality for, that I make a judgment of quality for, that I just, I don't particularly care for. Tree of Life. I, you know, I, there's enough people there who say that it's a high quality film or, uh, the other Terrence Malick film about Columbus, the New World. You know, where I'm just like, okay, I can recognize the quality in that, but I just, I don't like it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not 
whatever. Um, I think chariots of fire becomes that, that test case of reminding me. And the more I talk about it, the more it's, I, I've got issues with Christians who like the film and not the film is how few Christians make that distinction mm-hmm. in my mind. And when you're not willing to make a distinction between, oh, I'm talking about this is what I like and I'm making a critical judgment, then I do kind of resent that and push that back. But there's also a part of me that says, how many Christians that particular age are professional critics? Do they really need to be able to make it? How important is that distinction to anyone but me? And, well, and it's that if you're going to put yourself out there, right? You know, if, if it's a person who's just running around their life and say, hey, I like that movie. Right. It's my favorite movie. Yeah, who cares? Can't I accept that what they mean by this is the best movie ever? Is this is my favorite movie? It's my movie. favorite. And, and why is it so important for me to say, no, it's not the best movie ever. You should say it this right. way. And and maybe what you, maybe, I don't know. I'm right. putting words in your mouth right now. Maybe what you're getting at is there's a difference between the rank and file who are, yeah, I mean, the difference between affinity and judgment is not going to be there. They may not, they may not even watch movies enough to, to get there. And the professional critic, Christian critic, who's out there saying these things, you know, maybe that's where, where they, you know, a, a, yeah, a, a professional critic should be able. But I don't know how many, I don't know how many professional critics I know are gushing over this film yeah. or giving that, giving that response. Well, certainly a, of a type. Certainly, as we've talked about in like Soul Surfer and some of the other podcasts, uh, I might even make the argument that we get to the point where there's enough professional critics who will downgrade the film right. because of the Christian content uh, and say it's worse than what it is. When right. who won't make the distinction between I don't I don't like it and this is a bad you know and this is a bad film. So you had originally asked about best and. My comment about things that were yes. better or worse. Uh, really, the more I think about it, the things that I found worse in the film were, were in some ways, technical. Mm-hmm. Um, the soundtrack drives me nuts. Just, it grated on me. It was like somebody putting nails on a chalkboard. The, you mean the music? The music. The, okay. Um, I mean, there's the, the iconic Vangelis theme song in the running in the beginning. That's all, that's all well and good and nice. But throughout the film, um, it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, well, the movie of Wise Blood, um, the Untouchables as well, of this heavy synthesizer music in, first of all, very anachronistic. I mean, okay. movie set in the 20s, and right. we've got Moog synthesizers going crazy, and just overbearingly loud and not fitting the mood, really. Just that part drove okay. me nuts. So I was going to ask, is it the music itself or the use of the music? And it sounds like a little bit of both, both. you know. Yeah, I, um, it just was like, wow. And, you know, and, and to the point where there were some, you know, really key poignant moments. And one of the things I thought was very interesting was there was no music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Little's giving some of his speeches or whatnot, they, you know, there's no swelling strings in the background. It's just he's just talking. It's like, hmm, there's something here. Right. Um, so that, I mean, some of the technical stuff. I think it was, you know, worse. I was, I was actually fairly impressed with the, you know, the, the presentation of Little, um, you know, was better than I was remembering. The other thing that really made, for me, I was thinking of better, what was the, the focus on the Abraham story um, and how much that was developed um, and, and, and really some of the really interesting 
psychological development of that character. Um, I, in my mind, you know, and again, when I, when I saw this film first, I was a teenager and not at all sophisticated in my movie watching, but you know, in my head, I had this remembrance of he was just the unhappy guy that was striving. And then because he wasn't honoring God, he failed. That's not it at all. Um, his character is much more nuanced and much more uh, dynamic in the film. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, Ian Holm, as the the, the, the coach, uh, I had totally forgotten about him. Mm-hmm. And, and his performance, I thought, was fascinating. Um, reminded me a lot of his role in Big Night, um, in some of his mannerisms. But... Uh, no, I, I, it was in some ways it was it was a more complex film than I remembered, and so that that was the better for me. That's really true, and yet I feel like it's hard to articulate that for me because that's a contradiction. Earlier I said, "Well, it's very on the nose," so I, I don't know that. Well, the B story is very on the nose. The Eric Little story, which is and what, the presentation of it is yes. very on the nose. But you can have a you can have a very on the nose presentation of complex material, right? Or you can have very complex presentation of very simple material. Yeah. You know, you can have like some stories of Jesus or something. That, here's the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty simple material, but <laughs> here's complex in the way I present it. I, I find the presentation and the artistry of it to be very heavy handed. Yes. And yet, if I can get past, like you were talking about the music, if I can get past that, actually some of the scenes, some of the ideas that they're dealing with, there is a complexity there. And that's the thing that really actually engaged me more about the film than I remembered, is there is enough distance between 1981 and the 1920s to be somewhat dispassionate about, okay, yeah, even at our venerated universities, there were anti-Semites, there were right. racism, there was class, uh, there were class issues, and in some ways that's not swept under the rug. No. Uh, you know, that's acknowledged. And it, it, you know, it made me think, too, about there's not quite as much time but there's almost as much time between now and Chariots of Fire, 40 years, mm-hmm. as there was between Chariots of Fire and the 1920 Olympics or the 1960 Olympics. And, and I, I found that fascinating as I was right. thinking about it because it, I think there are ways in which anytime you have a thing about the past, not the distant past, there's just enough space for you to be able to address or deal with things that you aren't comfortable with dealing with in in the present. I I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I don't think we have time to develop this thought, but just Tim Tebow and the whole Tim Tebow phenomenon and the role of athletes in sports and the ways in which they experience prejudice and why that creates a sort of Christian um, politics of, you know, this is our side or whatnot, and we're going to back this person because he's a Christian, not because he's on our team. And it it was fascinating for me to be remembered, okay, there was a time, and there wasn't that long ago, where 
those obstacles were there, but there was also a space in which the Christian you know, could go up to the Jew mm-hmm. and say, you know, it's okay, you know, I wish you the best of success. It, I don't perceive my own thing as being a referendum, you know, my own athletic success right. as a referendum on whether or not my religion is better than your religion. And you can have people like Jackson Schultz who sort of say, okay, maybe I'm not an out there Christian the way that you are. I, I remember the, the Green Bay Packer quarterback, uh, whose name I forget, not Brett Favre, the, the current one. Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, you, you know, uh, someone asking him about Tim Tebow. And him saying in just like one interview, yeah, I, I'm a person of faith, but I don't, you know, I don't wear it in the same way. Right. And, and that there can be, you know, or there could even be people, I don't know anything about the historical Jackson Schultz, um, but who are like, I don't associate myself. I'm not doing that. I don't have the same agenda. Right. But I'm, I'm really okay with that. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I can see goodness in the integrity of what you're doing, you know, I can go outside of myself and it's not just all, it's a word I throw around a lot. It's not just all identity politics. Mm -hmm. There is a certain amount of politics going on there, but it just feels like we're at a place and time in our country right now where everything's about identity politics. It starts with who do you identify with? And then you have to be on that side and root for that person, whether he's a jerk or an idiot or a moron or really a good Christian, you know, uh, or not. And certainly that's, uh, and, and so it's fascinating to me. Uh, it, it was very refreshing. I, I didn't realize how much I'd been oppressed by an election year because election years really bring out right. identity politics. And well, if you're a Christian, you have to vote for this candidate or that candidate, or you have to have that particular position. And, and it made me long in a sort of nostalgic way. It did create a kind of nostalgia for me, you know, not of an era that I had lived through, uh, but of an era that could be nostalgic <laughs> for something that I really miss, which is, yeah, there are these differences. There is this arrogance. There's this class conflict. There's this religious conflict. But there's room f- within that for those conflicts to play out in in a way that's so less aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um it was it was a kind of quiet film. Yes. At, at points, you know. Now, I think at the end it felt like, oh, oh we need to be on the nose and have the, the triumphant score well, or something like that. One of the things I thought was interesting, um, is it Ian Christensen that played Little? Yeah. Uh, his delivery was... Or Charles, Charles, Charleston. Ian Charleston. Yeah, you know, Charleston. was very soft. And, you know, and I, obviously I have, I have no idea whatsoever about Eric Little's real speaking voice. But you know, even when he was giving a, a lecture or a sermon in front of a big packed church, his voice was still calm mm-hmm. and quiet. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I think there is something there about this. You know, it's not about the shouting. It's not about the... The boisterous, I mean, it's interesting because at one point they're talking about muscular Christianity. They must have an athletic, mm-hmm. muscular Christianity. And and Little was being held up as the poster child of muscular Christianity. Mm-hmm. And yet his own bearing was, again, I've used, I used the word before, humble, um, quiet. 
uh, very strong and principled, but not, you know, I'm not going to beat you down with my presence. Yeah, that was something I really liked about the film from, from a Christian perspective. Uh, there were these sorts of people that wanted to use yes. little in that what seems to me very modern sort of Christian way of, well, this is a commercial, you know, we want to use you as a commercial or a role model or, you know, a sponsor for Christianity. And he was aware of that, but he didn't buy into that in the way that, you know, one feels like, yeah. or embrace that the way that Tim Tebow did. He didn't back away from it, but it seemed much more of what Richard Foster calls in the Spiritual Formation Workbook an incarnational tradition mm -hmm. to sort of say, okay, I'm going to integrate my Christianity into this and into my running, into whatever it is that, that I'm doing. And I'm not going to look at the running as being a means to an end. This gives me a podium right. through which I can tell the gospel. It's this is good in and of itself because God gave me this gift and this is the way that I am honoring him. Um, and if I can do all these incarnational stuff that helps me be get the gospel out, then I got no problem with that. I will do that. But that's not my primary motivation. Right. And there's something that really appeals to me about that incarnational Christianity that says these things that I do, whether it's the arts, whether it's sports, it's Little's insistence that this has value in and of itself right. rather than just it has intrinsic value rather than just the extrinsic value of it. It allows me to he, be Little at one point references his father who right. told him that, you know, if you're peeling a potato, mm -hmm. that is glorifying to God. Mm -hmm. And and it, yeah, that very well, and that gets us to the, you know. The, the line that people quote all the time, you know, I I feel his pleasure when I run. Mm -hmm. God made me fast. Mm -hmm. and, and to not run would be to be, you know, rude towards arrogant. the gift, arrogance, the gifts that he's given me. And, and I, I would also say I find Little's argument very persuasive yes. in this sense. I mean, to me, the climax is actually not the thing in the Olympics of whether he would run or not. But from, from a Christian standpoint, I was, it's the argument with his, so it's a mom or his sister, his sister, his sister about this is why it's okay to let the mission field wait. Right. You know, this is why I have to do this. I, I, you know, I don't care too much about explaining to other people why Sunday is important. I care explaining to you as another Christian why running is important. And he makes an argument that I find persuasive, which is to say, you know, at the end of the day, I have to do what honors God. And the footnote of the film says he did go to China as a missionary and he died. And if he had just gone to China as a missionary and died, that would have been great work right. for the Lord. And I don't think we would have remembered him. No one would have made a movie. I mean, no. maybe there, there are movies about missionaries <laughs> right. or something like that. Um, but it was because he he really did not despise, uh, again, I'm parroting Foster in that incarnational tradition. You know, the incarnational tradition is breaking down the sacred secular dichotomy, right. you know, and sort of saying, no, I don't accept some things are sacred and some things are secular and, and I train myself to choose the sacred ones. It's everything is sacred. And he, he seemed to me to be very inspirational uh, for me, not just in the running 
that he was successful that helps but in the way that he approached running sure. and it's a model for me of incarnational christianity that says that no i, I i'm not going to accept the you know i'm not going to accept the secular lie that says running is more important so you have to give up your beliefs but i'm not going to accept the christian lie that running is unimportant that nothing that you ever do in life will be important except preaching the gospel right. you know or saying the gospel and Part of what I really loved about his character was his his not becoming not being co-opted by the people who just you know sort of wanted to use him and his talents as a role model for Christianity, but say there, there's there's a higher integration of the sacred and secular that I think Christians should be called to. Yeah. Well, we've been going on a bit. Yeah. Good stuff. Good film. We've kind of gotten into the habit toward the end. I mean, I, on a, a rewatching umpteen years later, I, I found the film to be compelling and good. Um, and certainly, I, I think, much more complex than I remembered it. So that gave me meat to chew on um, during the week. You're, it sounds like you're mixed and I'm coming, com- around. I'm coming around. I'm coming around. I'm, I'm still working through. I had some reservations about the film, but I'm still working through how many of them really have to do with the film. And I think, you know, as we head into the summer of the Olympics, the 2012 London Olympics, it gives us something to think through. I mean, we didn't, we got, we touched on it a little bit, but this whole idea of athletics and celebrity and Christianity, faith, um, that's going to be there. We're going to get umpteen number of stories on NBC's coverage of the the personal story of mm-hmm. whoever it is who's rowing a boat, and what is that? Um, and I think this film kind of gives us something, some questions we can ask. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Fin Place. If you have any comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com and leave a comment. Or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter, at Ken Moorfield, or at his blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!